0: If you have your Bibles with you, bet nobody can guess where I'm going to go for this Christmas sermon. Revelation chapter 1. Y'all thought Revelation was about the second coming, didn't you? Not today. Revelation chapter 1, I'm going to read the first eight verses. And then we'll look at them together. Please listen as I read the word of the living God. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bond servant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. For the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, yea, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So read the words. Of the living God. Our Father is the one who re- revealed these things 2,000 years ago. Your Spirit, who opened up John's eyes to see this vision and to write this letter, would you speak to our hearts this morning by that same Spirit? Reveal to us Jesus Christ that we might worship Him who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, in whose name I pray, amen. So it's Christmas time. We saw and heard the kiddos, there's excitement in the air, just a couple of days or so, three days, and we finally get to open all those gifts that are mounting in piles under the Christmas tree. Actually, at my house, there's about three presents, and none of them have my name on it, so I don't know, I don't know what that means just yet, but I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm walking through this day or two in faith that uh, there will be more presents under the tree, and some of them will have my name on them. As we think about opening Christmas gifts, one question that comes to my mind is, how good are you at receiving Christmas? gifts how good are you how what what goes through your mind and your heart as you're opening those gifts with your name on it we were having this discussion uh, around our breakfast table last week it's it's easy you know the scripture says it's more blessed to give than to receive jesus said those words and it's easy to downplay the receiving part. But just the statement, it's more blessed to give than to receive, assumes that it is blessed to receive. It's kind of like when Jesus said, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. You already love yourself, and, and so you need to learn to love others to the same degree that you already love yourself. Well, it, We know that it's blessed to be the recipient of gifts, but we can miss out on that blessing if we're not good receivers. How often do you tear into the gift, not really paying attention to the, the name on the card that says it's from so and so? I'll admit I'm not very good at receiving <laughs> gifts. I I typically uh, have to go back and look through the trash to see who gave me what gifts because I, I didn't really care. I just wanted to see what was in it. Even at my age, I want what's in this box? What, what, what's in here? And yet I'm, I'm, I'm retraining myself to look at who it's from and draw the association between this person who gave me this gift and what gift they gave me. Because somebody took the time to consider what would be a blessing to me and that's why they chose this gift. And so I'm trying to retrain myself to draw that association so that I don't just receive the blessing of having something, but also the the connection with whoever it is who's given me the gift. Do you do that? Are you good at receiving gifts? Uh, Some some of you in in this Christmas season have chosen to bless me and my family in a very unique way. We've been getting some, some cards, and you didn't put a return address on it. Well, actually, you did. You put frack as a return address. Thank you. Whoever you are, you know who you are. Thank you. It's been a huge blessing to my family and I. Now, I don't have the privilege of making the connection with you individually because you didn't tell me who you are. But the gifts under the tree primarily will have the name on there. And I want to become better at receiving when someone sets out to bless me. We can be bad recipients, if we only think of the gift and, and don't realize someone has given some thought to this. But of course, there's another way we can be a bad receiver of a gift, and that is to be arrogant, right? To be narcissistic, to think, yeah, why wasn't it more? Why aren't there more gifts with my name? Of course you're gonna get me gifts because look who I am, I'm, I'm special. We all know what it's like. To have people in our families or in our workplaces or in other scenarios who, uh, they're just so full of themselves, they forget that there are other people in the room, there are other, there's a broader context than just you receiving the gifts. Well, the same thing can happen when we think about the Christmas gift. When we think about God's love for us in giving us his son, Jesus. It's easy to make that so individualistic that we forget Jesus came to, to die on the cross as part of a much, much bigger story, and it's not ultimately about us, it's about him. This, this Christmas season, the, the, the theological term for it is what? Thank you, somebody, Advent, right, it's Advent, it's The coming of Christ, that's what the word Advent means, is to come. Jesus has come. And for us now, two millennia, we've been living in the fact that, in light of the fact that Jesus has come. We need to let that sink in to the deepest recesses of our heart. He has come, and his kingdom has come with him. So, we have been looking at the different aspects of Advent. We've got all the little candles over there, and I know some of you have been concerned every week and are especially concerned this week because some of those candles are really getting shorter, and you're thinking, if he preaches too long, then the the little stuff underneath could catch fire. I will beat that candle, I promise. (laughs) We've been looking at these different elements of Advent from the perspective of the prophecies that were predicting the coming of the Messiah, and in particular, we looked at Isaiah 9 and some others. Well, today, before we look at Revelation, we're going to look at a couple of uh, other ones uh, that set up Revelation. And the first one is from Daniel 2. Daniel 2, you may remember the story, uh, Daniel is, uh, is basically, he's saving, literally saving the heads of all the other uh, uh, prophets and, and, and wise men and, and, and seers in Babylon, if you recall the story, Nebuchadnezzar has this very disturbing dream, and he calls all the seniors in, and he says, I want you to tell me not just the interpretation of the dream, but I want you to actually tell me what I dreamed, and then give me its interpretation. Uh, have you ever had that happen to you? I had that happen all the time. Crystal will say, guess what I dreamed last night? Um, a bunny rabbit was running through the backyard. No, no, it was a mean, vicious, harsh, violent dream. Oh, a scary bunny with big teeth ran through the, bar, right? I don't know what you dreamed. Why don't you tell me? Well, Nebuchadnezzar says, I want you to tell me my dream. And if you can't tell me my dream, off with your heads. Can you imagine? Like, I want a new vocation. I don't want to be a seer anymore if that's, the, if that's what's required. And, and Daniel says, I got this. Because the Lord showed him what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed and what it means. So Daniel walks in and says, here's what you dreamed. You dreamed that you saw this huge giant statue, and the head was a head of gold, and the chest was silver, and the thighs were bronze, and then iron and clay made the feet. And then you saw this stone that no man had carved, and this stone came and knocked over the statue, crushed it to the ground, pulverized it, and then that stone grew up into this Huge mountain that covered the entire earth. It filled the earth. Nebuchadnezzar said, Whoa, yeah, that's exactly what I dreamed. What does it mean? And Daniel said, Well, here's what it means, King. First of all, you are the head of gold. And at that point, Nebuchadnezzar's head got a little bit bigger uh, because he thought, Yeah, I am somebody. Well, you're the head of gold. But you're gonna not last forever, and another kingdom is gonna come. That's, we now know, the Medes and the Persians. And then that kingdom is not gonna last forever. Another kingdom's gonna come, the, the thighs, that's the Greeks and Alexander the Great. And then there's gonna be another kingdom that's gonna come destroy that one or, or conquer that one, and that's gonna be the Roman Empire. That's the feet of clay and, and iron. And that's exactly what happened. We now, in hindsight, can look back and see exactly how that worked. Babylon existed for a while, then the Persians came, and then the Greeks came, and then the Romans came. And he says, in the middle of that kingdom, the last one, God is going to set up his kingdom. That stone that grows up into a giant rock mountain and and fills the earth, that's God's kingdom. And in the reign of Caesar Augustus that we looked at last week, the child was born who would be God's king of God's kingdom. Now, if you read Daniel 2, five times the word revelation or revealed is used. Five times either Daniel or Nebuchadnezzar says something about the God who reveals things, the God who gives the revelation. And he says, you have revealed, God has revealed the things that will happen in the last days. Keep that in mind, revelation, last days. So that's Daniel 2. A few chapters later, Daniel 7 is a familiar prophecy. We have looked at this recently in other contexts. I'm I'm just going to quote the key verses here. Here's another vision now that Daniel is having, not not Nebuchadnezzar, but Daniel is having this vision. In chapter 7, verse 13, it says, I kept looking in the night visions... And behold, and this is the key phrase here, okay, with the clouds of heaven. So Daniel sees with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man coming. So Daniel sees in his vision the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So remember this in the earlier uh, part of the vision. God is on his throne. And the throne is on fire. And the wheels of the throne are on fire. And out from the middle of the throne comes a, a, a river of fire. And everything's on fire. And there are myriads of angels around, and all these books and thrones and things, and the Son of Man comes up to the throne of God. That's what Daniel's seeing here. And to the Son of Man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him, the Son of Man. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. It's the same thing that, that Nebuchadnezzar saw, or that, John, that Daniel revealed in John chapter, or John, that's next month, uh, that Daniel talked about in Daniel chapter 2, when God builds this kingdom in the time of the Roman Empire, which will grow and fill the earth, and it will expand that's what Daniel is seeing here in chapter 10. So we've got Revelation and the stone that becomes the, the mountain that fills the earth. And now we have the Son of Man coming to God and receiving the kingdom that will last forever. And he comes in the clouds. So hold those in your, hold those in your mind. They're gonna be important. One more. In Psalm 89... So so Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, all that's 500, 550, 550 years before Jesus, somewhere in there. Psalm 89 is prior to that. And this psalm, there's a lot of predictions about the, uh, the son of David. David, the great king of Israel, he's going to have a son who will sit on the throne of God forever. And there's a lot in the psalm that predicts this, but I'm going to highlight a couple of verses. Verse 27 says this. This is God speaking, I also shall make him, the son of David, my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth, All right? So that's his prediction, I will make him the firstborn, my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth, and then down to verse 36, he says, his descendants shall endure forever, and his throne Shall endure as the sun before me, it shall be established forever like the moon, and the faithful or the witness in the sky is faithful. Meaning, just as sure and faithful as the sun and the moon are in the sky forever, so this one who reigns will reign forever. Okay, so you got firstborn, ruler of the kings of the earth, and the faithful witness of the sun and the moon. Are you with me? Got all this? If you don't, you're not going to understand Revelation 1. All that's the backdrop. All of these are hundreds and hundreds of years prior to the birth of Jesus. Then Jesus is born. He's the child born from Isaiah 9. And remember what we talked about in Isaiah 9. The prediction was this child, when he is born, there will be no end to the increase of his kingdom or of peace. Remember, we looked at that a couple weeks ago. No end to his kingdom or of peace. Well, he was born, he lived to be a, an adult man, he died on the cross, and then he rose again to life, and then he ascended it to the right hand of the Father where he sits right now reigning over heaven and earth. And the question is, what's he doing? And what has he been doing for the last two millennia? Well, we're going to get a little glimpse of that here in Revelation chapter 1. So, the first phrase of Revelation chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. There are lots of allusions in Daniel, but especially here early on, I mean in Revelation, especially here early on, to Daniel. And one of those allusions is this word revelation, to uncover something. Well, in Daniel, what was uncovered was the things that would take place in the last days. Now we know what those things would be in the last days, not a what, but a who? Jesus, the revelation of Jesus Christ. God gave him this revelation to show his bondservants the things which not will take place in the last days, but now John changes it. These things must soon take place. Not soon for you and me. Soon for John. Soon for his first audience. He wrote this in the first century. These things must soon take place. Jesus is being revealed He sent communicated by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. So God gave it to Jesus. Jesus gave it to his angel. The angel gave it to John. John gives it to us so that we might see and know Jesus Christ. He testified to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus, to all that he saw. And verse 3, blessed is he who reads. So right now I'm being blessed because I'm reading this prophecy. And you're being blessed. Because he says, blessed are those who hear. Most importantly, blessed are those who heed or keep these things, which he's written uh, here. Why? For the time is near. For John's original audience, this is going to happen now, whatever this is. So John says, I'm writing to the seven churches that are in Asia. That's our modern-day Turkey. It was Asia Minor. And as you know, the, ch- the seven churches that he writes to in chapters 2 and 3 are all churches in that area. Here's what he says. Grace to you and peace. Remember we talked a couple weeks ago. From now on, when you see that opening, grace to you and peace, don't just think, oh, he's being nice. This is not just a, hey, how are you? And you expect to just say fine, because if you say anything other than fine, I don't want to really hear it. I don't have time to hear all your problems. Just say fine. You know, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Fine, and, and let's move on with our day. Th- that's not this kind of greeting. This greeting is truly Grace to you, God's grace to you. And peace, because the prince of peace has come. And there will be no end to the increase of his peace. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. I wasn't sure if I was going to do this or not. I'm going to take a moment here. In, in my translation I just read to you, grace to you. From him, do all your translations say him there? If you're a grammarian, him is the proper form of the pronoun. That is not the pronoun in the Greek. In the Greek, it is he. Now, for uh, 90% of you, you're like, "Why are you wasting my time with this?" But for a few of you, like, "Wait, he doesn't belong there. It's got to be him." I'm talking to my wife now. It's got to be him. In the Greek, it's he. He who is. Not him. And the question is, does John not know Greek? Does he not know basic grammar? I mean, a, a, a sixth grader in our day, a, a 12th grader ought to know the difference between the him and the He. What's going on here? The way it's framed in the Greek is the same as in Exodus chapter 3 when God shows up and he says, tell them, I am he sent you. Not I am him, but I am he. It's the same structure. What's going on here, the reason John kept it, he in the Greek, even though grammatically it should be him, is the one who is... This is Yahweh. This is Exodus 3. This is I am. This is the Greek form of I am. So John is saying grace to you and peace from he who is, from I am. Does that make sense? Tracking with me? All three of these phrases kind of capture that he him who is and who was and who is to come is a longer way of saying I am I am now, I am in the past, I am in the future, I am. So you thank God here. But then look at verse 8. What color is verse 8 in your Bible? If you have a red letter Bible, it's in the red, right? Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, and who was, and who is to come, comma, the Almighty. Remember we saw in in Isaiah chapter 9, he will be called Wonderful Counselor. What's the next one? Almighty Almighty God. Thank you, Martha. And then Everlasting Father, and then Prince of Peace. He will be called Almighty God. Jesus says, I am him. He, I am he. I am him and he. I am Almighty God the one who was and who is and who is to come. So grace to you from God and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And I'm tempted to go back and draw that out of Isaiah 11, but I'm not going to take the time. You can look at that if you want. But in Isaiah chapter, well, I'm gonna, I am going to read this. Let the candles burn. I can, we'll be all right. So in Isaiah 11, it says this. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. We, that's Jesus. He's the, the offspring of Jesse, uh, the son of David. That's Jesus. And here's what it says. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. That's one spirit. Spirit of the Lord. The spirit of wisdom. That's two. The spirit of understanding. That's three. The spirit of counsel, that's four. The spirit of strength, that's five. The spirit of knowledge, that's six. And I skipped one. And the fear of the Lord, that's seven. The seven spirits rest on this one. That's what John is seeing here. That's what he's saying, from the one who, the seven spirits of God. So you've got the Holy Spirit, but specific application to Jesus Christ. And then verse five, And from Jesus, the Messiah. And look at the three things he says about Jesus, the Messiah. Faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth. All taken from Psalm 89 that I read to you. He's the faithful witness. In Psalm 89, it's the sun and the moon that are the faithful witness that he, God will, set his, his king on the throne. But now Jesus is the faithful witness. He is even more sure than the sun and the moon. And he's called the firstborn of the dead. Some of you are getting a little nervous now because you know how much time I could spend on firstborn. I'm not going to spend as much time as I would like to on firstborn, but you have to know this. The firstborn son in antiquity was the one who had inherited the entire estate. He became the the patriarch when father died. He got two-thirds of the inheritance. He became the king of the clan, the ruler over all of his sons. He's the one that received what we call the firstborn blessing or the primogeniture blessing. And now when father died, then all the other sons and daughters would submit to the firstborn. He became the king in dad's place. And that's what Jesus did. He became the king. God says, I will make him my firstborn." And he says, I'm going to give him many brothers in Romans 9 who will submit to him and bow down to him and worship him as king. That's Jesus. And John says, he is the one who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. That is present tense for John. In John's day, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Not someday will be, but is. Here's the question. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus Christ today rules over the kings of the earth? Of course you believe that. But do you really believe it? It is easy to get this right in our head. It's easy to say, yep, check, and not actually believe and live our lives From the perspective that Jesus is ruling over every king on planet Earth right now. I mean, who is our earthly king? Uh, Congress? Maybe all three branches? The court? The houses? the, The executive branch? Jesus Christ is king of the United States government. And and, and really, because we're a republic, we are the king. Because we're the ones that put them in positions to make laws. Is Jesus Christ ruling over right now the American republic? Absolutely. He is its king. He is our king as a nation. Is he a passive king or an active king? Do you believe that? How about Putin? How about King Jong Un? How about Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, China? Jesus Christ is the King of all of their kings today, and we—it's easy to forget that, or to scratch your head and say, uh, "Well, I don't know what He's doing," because it sure seems like these kingdoms are godless out of control, Jesus is their king. And not only is he ruling, but he's also the one to whom they will give an account someday. No matter what atrocities anybody gets away with today on planet Earth, someday they will stand before the king and give an account for how they ruled because Jesus is currently the ruler of the earth. Remember we talked last week For the joy set before him he endured the cross, that joy is not future. That joy is now for him. He is now experiencing the joy for which he endured the cross as he reigned over heaven and earth. And he's not doing everything quite the way you and I would do probably. Right? We would have wiped out the enemies a long time ago. Just, okay, let's let's get on with it. For his purposes, he has not done that. But that's who he is, and that's what he's doing. The king has come, and he's reigning. To him, middle of verse five, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. This Advent Sunday is about Christ, our love. And you're thinking, well, you've already been going for 20 minutes, and you're just now talking about love. How long is this sermon going to be? I'm not gonna spend a whole lot of time on love because I want to set it in the context of my opening comments. His love for us is real and it is profound, but it is in a bigger context. We must always be careful of becoming too individual when it comes to God's love. Does he love you? Absolutely. Jesus came to die for you. He came to die for your sins. He came to release you from the penalty you deserve for your sins and to free you from the power that sin had over you and me as individuals. I have a direct line to God. I have faith, personal faith in Jesus. You have personal faith in Jesus. And it is that faith that brings forgiveness of sin. And he loves you and he chose you before the foundation of the world. But he did all of that in the context of a bigger story. And we don't want to receive his love in such a way that it's all about me instead of about what he is doing in his world. Christ loves you enough to bring you out of the kingdom you once belonged to, the kingdom of darkness, and into the kingdom of his son. And what is he doing? Verse six, he has made us to be a kingdom. Remember Isaiah 9, the kingdom is never going to stop increasing. We are all part of that increase of his kingdom. And he says, to be a priest to his God and Father. What that means is you and I today are priests. Have you thought about that? You are a priest. Now, if you're visiting with us today or if this is new to you, don't call me your priest, okay? I'm not your priest. That's sometimes how we feel. The pastor's the priest. No, I'm not your priest. You don't need me. You have direct line to God without me. None of the elders are priests. I'm a teacher. I'm an equipper and a trainer. I'm not the go-between between between you and and God. Jesus is the go-between between you and God. You are a priest. If you are a Christian, male or female, you are a priest. Well, that begs an obvious question. Who are we mediating between? That's what a priest is, right? A priest is someone who takes people to God. That's what priests did in the Old Covenant. All the people were outside the temple area, and they would bring their offerings and give them to the priest, and the priest would come and deliver that offering to God. Well, if we are all priests, we're not... We're not mediating between other Christians and God. I just told you, you don't need a mediator. Well, who does need a mediator? Unbelievers. When he says that we are priests, we are priests bringing the world of unbelievers to God. Paul uses this exact terminology at the end of the book of Romans. If you want to flip over there with me to Romans 15. Romans 15, verse 15, Paul says, but I've written, to, I've written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. So that's what that was his calling. He was a servant of Christ to the Gentiles. And notice how he describes it. Ministering as a priest the gospel of God. So that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul says, as I go into Gentile town after Gentile town, and I bring the gospel to them, and people repent of their sins and turn to Christ, I am bringing an offering set apart by the Holy Spirit, acceptable to God in and through Christ and the Holy Spirit. I'm a priest. I'm taking those outside the temple and bringing them into the presence of God. Well, John says in Revelation, that's the entire church. We are priests. And there is no end to the increase of his kingdom. That means, beloved, we have work to do. Because there's a lot of people outside the temple gates, who live around us. And our calling is to expand the kingdom because it's going to continue to increase. The king has come and he's building his kingdom and his peace is going to grow and we are priests who come and offer them to God, set apart by the Holy Spirit. That's our job. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then, So I'm back in Revelation 1 now. Verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds. Remember that from Daniel? Daniel saw the Son of Man coming to receive his kingdom. John is telling us, telling them in the first century, that happened. When Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God, he received the kingdom from the Father, and he's been building his kingdom ever since. And every eye will see him even those who pierced him. And now he's alluding to Zechariah. For the sake of time, I didn't take you to Zechariah. But he's alluding to Zechariah. Everyone I will see him, even those who pierced him. Even Jews will understand that he is the king. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn him. Same thing, he's referring back to something in, in, the, in Zechariah. Zechariah sounds a lot like Revelation. If you haven't read it lately, go back and read it and you'll see that. In Zechariah, it's the tribes of Israel who will see him and mourn over him. Notice what John does with it. All the tribes of the earth. Now he's combining Zechariah's statement with the original promise made to Abraham in you. All the families of the earth will be blessed. How are all the families of the earth going to be blessed? When the seed of Abraham comes. That's Jesus. The gospel is going out and every family group in Colorado Springs, every people group in the U.S., every people group in Senegal, in West Africa, in Russia, in China, everywhere across the globe, all families of the earth are going to mourn over him, mourn in repentance and come to him. Yea and amen, it says. So what's our job here coming out of Advent just to celebrate a baby? No. Just to think about the incarnation? No. The king has come and he's expanding his kingdom and his love is, is filling the earth and his glory is filling the earth and we have a role to play in calling people to bow the knee to the king who has come. When I was a kid growing up, my mom taught me a song, and I want to see when I give you one little hand gesture if you know what song I'm about to sing. Ready? You guys are good. Right? Did you ever learn that? Some of you did. And it, it's really great, isn't it? Like deep and wide, and then the second time, you don't sing the deep, right? It's and wide. And wide, and then you skip the deep and the wide, d, or, and, and at the end you're just just doing the motions. It's kind of a simple song. Deep and wide, there's a fountain flowing. Deep and wide. Well, what's the fountain? It's, it's the love of God. And the fountain is flowing deep and wide. We're going we're gonna to close here with the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And, and, and when we think about God's love, I think we especially appreciate the depth of God's love. And what I mean by that is, he loves you and he loves me. It, it's overwhelming to think that he would send his son to die on the cross for, for me, for you. Sometimes I think we don't really believe it's very wide. But the scripture says, from the, from the four corners of the earth, he is going to reign and his kingdom is going to spread and, and all the families of the earth are going to mourn over him. How wide is his love? How far reaching is his gospel? Here's what I think we do. We, we read these promises that, that, that the, the glory of the Lord is going to fill the earth. That stone is going to become a, a mountain that covers the earth, that fills the earth. And, and, we, and there's an error, a very serious error, that concludes what we call universalism. Oh, well, if, 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 if that's what it means, that everybody's saved, so we're good. Everybody's good. And that is heresy, right? No one is saved. Who does not confess Jesus as Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead? You have to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus and confess him as Lord and follow him as Lord and obey him as Lord. Those things are required. So, nobody who doesn't do that, no one's going to be saved. So, all of these promises about the far reaching glory of God, none of those imply that everybody is saved. No, no, only those who repent. But I think sometimes then we flip to the other extreme and we read these massive promises and we really think, yeah, but it doesn't really mean that. It's just going to be very, very small. It's not what the scripture says. Even, I know a verse that went to some of your minds right now. Some of you are saying, but Jesus said, narrow is the path, right? Narrow is the gate. Look at it in its context. He's talking to Israel. Go look it up again. In fact, in Luke's version, a Jew asks him, Lord, are only a few going to be saved? And he says, basically, only a few of you. But then they're going to come from the north, south, east, and west and gather in huge numbers at the table while you are cast outside and weeping and gnashing of teeth because you didn't get in. We've got to read these things in context. The gospel is going to fill the earth. And we have the opportunity and the privilege and the responsibility to call the nations to bow the knee to their king and receive the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ and experience his love. So as we sing this song and the deep, deep, deep love of the Father for us, I want you to be thinking in your own mind, it's also really wide. And if you want to do this while we're singing that song, that's fine. It doesn't really fit, but you go right ahead. If it makes you think, and his love is going to continue to draw people to the cross forever and ever. And this Advent season, I want us to remember the child has been born for us, the king has come, he is building his kingdom, and there will be no end to the increase of his kingdom or of peace. And in 2020, may he bring more people into his kingdom through the ministry of Front Range Alliance Church. Let's pray. Father, on behalf of all of my brothers and sisters in this room, I say thank you for opening our hearts and minds to the truth of the gospel, for making your love wide enough to include us. But there is a fountain flowing deep and wide. You are not done expanding the kingdom of your son Jesus. Jesus. And you are not done pouring over sinners the fountain of your love. And so may we receive your gift personally with gratitude, but also in hope and faith and with the, the conviction the hopeful conviction of seeing others be the recipients of your love. Father, our brother and sister in another part of the world that we heard their report, use them in the upcoming year to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ and use every one of us in Colorado Springs to expand the kingdom of your son. Our king has come. He loves us. And his love overflows. May we be part of that overflow. Amen.